This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is September the 24th. I'm John Dunn, and this week on the Best Friends Podcast, we're talking about emergencies. Seems like a good a time as any to talk about them, right? And you don't need me to tell you this, but there is a lot going on in the world. Taking news out west where firefighters are battling dozens of massive wildfires across several states. In California, for example, the fires there have already caused a nearly 2,000% increase in the amount of acres burned year to date. This. These winds, at least 110. Right now we're seeing gusts inside the center of 185. I mean, this is going to destroy not just homes and businesses, churches, hospitals, schools, but then the winds shift to the other direction. And even if you don't live in a region where you've been affected by hurricanes or wildfires, there's a nationwide, well, I guess worldwide emergency that we've all been dealing with. We are set to pass another dark milestone in the fight against the coronavirus. The U.S. death toll is nearing the 200,000 mark, according to the latest numbers from Johns Hopkins University. The nation also continues to have more cases than anywhere else in the world. So it's critical that we prepare to respond to emergencies, meteorological or otherwise, so that when, not if, but when they happen, we are able to help pets and the people who love them. So we thought that this week, given the topic, we should check in on Louisiana. It's heartbreaking. I mean, it's nothing short of heartbreaking. The only thing that lets me know that it will be okay is having that experience. That's Jamie Clark, the Shelter Operations Director for Acadiana Animal Aid. They're in southern Louisiana. We are probably about two hours west of New Orleans. We're uh, in what's referred to as Cajun country. I am from here originally. I don't have the accent. They're still picking up the pieces after Hurricane Laura's landfall about a month ago. That was the 10th strongest hurricane in U.S. history. So Laura is another name added to an infamous list. I have been through many a hurricane, the most notable being Katrina and Rita. Personally sustained the most damage with Lily. We lost the back half of our home for Lily. But Katrina and Rita for our communities were definitely the most substantial, the most difficult to overcome. And the damage I'm seeing now in the Lake Charles area in Calcasieu and Cameron in that area is definitely on par with Rita. And in a lot of areas, it's actually worse than Rita. Hurricane Sally made landfall a week ago in Alabama. Louisiana wasn't affected too much by that storm, but the next storm, Beta, it's dumping crazy amounts of rain in Texas and Louisiana. They're just not getting a break. Driving through there, there's this surreal feeling and you look at it and you just think, how can you come back from this? How does anyone come back from this? Because it's not a pocket of damage. It's not, you know, every fifth or sixth house or every other block. It is just decimation. I mean, there are just these wide swaths of, you know, homes that are just missing or just you're driving and just for miles, as far as the eye can see, every house is tarped or wrapped or missing. The last time I was there was Friday and you still had at least half of, half if not more of the streetlights were still out. We struggled to find a place to go to the restroom to stop for fuel. So when you're there, it's a very overwhelming feeling and it's very hard to know that we'll get back to a place where we're whole. Now, Jamie told me it's not just the devastation, but it's the size of the area that's been impacted. The number of people who had to evacuate, 
thousands and thousands. Obviously, so many of them are pet owners. We had to really figure out how to send our resources and disperse them in all directions, which was unusual. You know, we're used to kind of concentrating our efforts in one area. And we had a situation where we had 20 plus parishes that were declared states of emergency and they were scattered. We kind of had this pocket in the middle, which we were fortunate to be sitting in that pocket, which left us able to kind of go about and help others. But it, it was unusual in that regard. We hadn't encountered that before. Oh, and while we're at it, let's throw this pandemic into the mix. This has been a complicated storm. So what has been very different on top of just the logistics and the geographic differences with this storm is that we've had COVID. So normally when you evacuate for a storm, you have these mega shelters. So you have the Superdome, you have the mega shelter in Alexandria, you have these places where everyone is kind of communally housed together. And those people who have their pets have their pets with them. And there's usually some place closely adjacent or within that facility where those pets are housed and cared for. This has not been that. So what has happened is FEMA has been doing vouchers for hotels, which means that people are scattered and that this was very much a first and it was very rushed. People were just not prepared for how this was going to happen. So you've got all these people in hotels, but now a month later, they're starting to return to their homes if they have one to return to. In some cases, they're coming back to their communities to shelters that have now been set up. So imagine buses going hotel to hotel in New Orleans, putting everyone who's from a certain zip code on board and hitting the road. But a lot of those people have pets. If they have a pet with them and that pet is under 20 pounds and there is no more than one pet per family member and that pet can sit on their lap, the pet can go on the city bus with them. However, if the pet exceeds 20 pounds or if there's more pets than family members, the pet cannot take up a seat on the city bus. So that's where organizations like us and LSART and other groups come in. And we actually follow these buses to help keep the pets with their families in transit. COVID's hotel situation has created another challenge, something reminiscent of storms from long ago. The difficulty and what is happening is we're finding out, though we know there's 500 plus animals being cared for in the New Orleans area right now, and the ASTCA is on the ground there, matching up the people and the pets has been difficult because the type of registry that was normally done uh, in these mega shelters wasn't done in this hotel environment. So it's 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 a little chaotic. They'll they'll figure it out, but it's going to be it's definitely going to be a process. Now, stray animals don't stop being strays. So all of the shelters in those communities are still taking in pets. They're given extended stray holds during this time, 30 days, sometimes more, but those are coming to an end soon. So we'll start seeing the first of the strays uh, being released sometime next week. And they have over 100 just in Calcasieu Parish Animal Services alone. And that's just them. Jamie calls that the first wave after the storm. And then you see another wave of people who kind of a really harsh reality starts setting in. And they're not going to be getting back into that home in the next week, two weeks, two months. And unfortunately for some of them, 
retaining that pet, that family member just becomes an overwhelming thing for them. And so we start to see those owner surrenders actually we're already seeing it. Acadiana is still looking for receiving organizations. So if you're in a position to take pets into your community and help find them homes, easiest way to do this is for you to email us, podcast at bestfriends.org, and we'll get you hooked up, podcast at bestfriends.org. It's praying and hoping that you're still going to have that support there in the weeks and months after all that coverage has gone away and all of the news surrounding it is gone and the hard work that needs to be done is still there. Now, whether it's hurricanes or wildfires, pandemics, civil unrest, it's all unpredictable. And as Jamie said, even the systems that have been developed and put in place, like registries, can fail. Not necessarily because of human error, it's just the nature of it all. But that's why preparing is so important. When those bumps in the road come up, you're in a better position to handle them. So how do we prepare? And what is happening in the emergency response world right now? I spoke with the Senior Manager of Emergency Response for Best Friends, Sharon Howa. Sharon, this feels to me, I guess an untrained person, like it's really bad. We've got hurricane season, some of the strongest storms you know, we've ever had, right, in American history. So from your perspective, your expert perspective, where does this year rank? Well, I mean, it's hard to rank because it's cyclical. You know, disasters happen in waves um, where they just sort of, you know, happen one after the other. But I think this is just different because there's just so much layered on top of all of the natural disaster stuff that I feel like people are feeling it more. And there's just, there's more volatility. There's sort of this strange air out there that you know, people just don't know, you know, it's hard to kind of put your finger on it. I think people are just contending with too much. And then on top of that, obviously, you've got this global pandemic, which none of us thought we would live to uh, see. So I just caution people when they're listening to the news, the news loves to sensationalize stuff. So all of those hurricanes that are out in the water, like that's happened before. That happens every year. So, you know, just don't necessarily focus on the, oh my God, the world is ending. This is, this is sort of a, a seasonal thing that emergency managers are used to. What we need to focus on is the level of intensity of these storms and these wildfires. That's the change that you can attribute to climate change. You know, these storms are getting more ferocious and they're happening a little bit more often. How do we mitigate these disasters so that we don't continue to just be in this response mode? Like, how do we get proactive about it? And that's really just getting more serious about climate change. Obviously, when we talk about hurricanes and impact, human, animal lives, Katrina is really the storm. It's like sort of the benchmark, I guess. Absolute mess on every level. Uh, you know, I noticed we just passed the 15-year anniversary of Katrina. Are we appreciably better today, 15 years later? I know the Pets Act passed after Katrina. I know that was a big deal, but you know, I don't live in a hurricane area. So just as an outsider, I see the storms, I see the news. I mean, hell, Harvey, for example, it still seems to me like we have a lot of shortcomings. Oh, gosh, I think we're in much better shape than we were 15 years ago. I think what Katrina helped to do, and I'm, I'm kind of one of the optimist emergency managers, I like to look at what, has they, what have things taught us versus what have we suffered from, um, you know, in these tragedies. Katrina taught us so much about where, we, where our gaps are. 
the Pets Act helped to elevate, you know, pets to the forefront, our, our dogs and cats at home, you know, that emergency managers at the local, state and federal levels need to have a plan in place to address those needs, because they've obviously seen and we still see time and time again, that people will not leave unless they have somewhere to go with their animals, and that people cannot recover successfully unless they know where their animals are. Animals are a part of people's families. And, you know, the, the, it took us a very long time to understand that and to build that into our emergency management plans. But I think we're there. We have a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. We still have a lot of gaps and stuff. But I think that the animal welfare community, along with the emergency management community, could continue to work together to build the bridges to make those shortfalls um, less and less. And, and I think that that's basically where we are. I'm, I'm optimistic that we will get to a place where we're prioritizing pets and pet lives in an emergency, that where people are planning for pets as part of their emergency preparedness plans. I think that's really one of the biggest gaps right now is that people aren't planning for themselves, let alone their pets. And so when something happens like a wildfire where people have to evacuate, it's almost impossible to try and, you know, figure out where your animals are. And so how do we support the need for animal search and rescue and animal recovery and animal reunification? And the pieces are there. We're just now all trying to put it all together. You know, my role over the years when it comes to disaster response, like I'm just behind a desk where, and it's actually where I'm best, right? So I don't know anything about what it's like to be on the ground, but from behind my desk, it often seems to me like there's very little clarity, I guess, on who's doing what, who's working with who. It just always seems so chaotic, right hand, left hand kind of stuff. Is that true? And, you know, would you say we're figuring out how to work together better? I think that what happens is that people who are continuing to experience it are just fatigued. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're experiencing it over and over and over again. And I think that what we're starting to see and what's been happening over the last maybe decade or so is a lot of mutual aid agreements with states that need the support, bring in other groups, other national groups or other state groups from, from different parts of the country that can help support the need while also building their own capacity to deal with that particular emergency if it were to occur in their own state. You know, that's a part of the success of being able to respond. I think that there's just too much that's happening simultaneously now that is cutting on the resources. But I do want to make a point about disasters starting and ending at the local level. One of the things that from a national organization perspective, what we tend to kind of focus on is how do we come in and help support, you know, for that short period of time and then we walk away. I think that the real, the really biggest piece of this is how do we help build local capacity so that they can continue to respond and be that community strength um, when they need it, whether it's our national partners, our network partners, national, um, I'm sorry, our local partners, our, our network partners, rescues and shelters that are on the ground. How do we strengthen them so that they can be able to help respond? You know, we can train them in a variety of different response techniques, you know, shelter operations, reunification, whatever it is, and help them become that arm for the community so that when they're in, impacted by a disaster, they can obviously, you know, help to support the need at the local level. And they can continue to support the need because they are, they've been, you know, trained and they are ready to go so that they're not impacted themselves. I think that that's where we really need to continue our focus is really helping to build and strengthen that community support 
and building the local capacity so that they can continue to respond to disasters. If we think about the sort of animal sheltering rescue ecosystem, I guess for a lack of a better term, you know, we have all of these types of organizations. I think of Best Friends, our organization, national, we have some resources devoted, staff like you, other national organizations, emergency responses like either all they do or a huge part of what they do. Locally, we have bigger organizations. In these times, man, they're on it, right? Playing the leadership role. Acadiana Animal Aid on this episode down in Louisiana, I would put in that group. And then we have these smaller organizations that just, they're like not in a position to help in that way. They need help trying to coordinate all of these organizations together. Like ahead of talking to you, I was thinking about this and it just made me realize again how important it is to talk to others in your community, build the coalition now. Because like when your hand is going up, you sure as hell better know where to point that hand. And people need to know that you and and your animals and your care are there and need help. Absolutely. Partnerships are are key. It, it goes back to what I was saying about mutual aid. I mean, what what is mutual aid? It's just a partnership with another organization, another state, another group um, that can help support you when you need it and vice versa. And I think that that's how this whole thing is going to work successfully is if those partnerships are made. And as you said, ahead of a disaster. So those business cards are exchanged ahead of a disaster. Um, and so you all know each other's capabilities and capacity and what you're able to do and you're kind of being the missing the missing puzzle pieces when a disaster strikes. And I, I think that that is one of the most important things to have in place. And we're seeing that more and more on the ground. But I do encourage anyone who's listening that if that's something that you can do during what we call blue sky days when there's no disaster, then you know, that is absolutely what you should do. And and best friends could help you with that. You know, we've got a whole bunch of network partners that are always eager to help you know, I'm from Michigan. Natural disasters just aren't a very commonplace thing here. But like that doesn't mean that I don't have a role to play, that organizations here don't have a role to play. I mean, you could argue that in a larger sort of nationwide coalition that it is the communities that are doing well in states like Michigan or Maine or, I don't know, Iowa, that really are the ones that very much have a role to play. Listen, I think that transports, you know, are are proving to be one of the biggest ways either, you know, even on predicted events, you've got the before the landfall and then after the landfall. And there's so much that can be done. You, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, we can transport animals anywhere, right? And all it takes is a car and some fuel. And so it's about making those relationships. And if you have a need in Michigan for certain kinds of dogs or you're open to take heartworm positive dogs or during kitten season, you've got a kitten shortage up in Michigan. I mean, it doesn't even have to be during disasters. There's always going to be a need. And I think that that's the important way to plug in is identifying what you need as a state. You know, what what are some of the animals that move out of your system very quickly? And who has that? Who has that resource? who has an, you know, an overflow of those types of animals. Um, I think that's really important. And again, you don't have to wait for a disaster to make that happen. Okay. So if I look at all of these things happening right now, like individually, take the wildfires out West, unbelievable devastation, historic. I think I read that five of the six biggest ever fires in California history are burning right now. So like that alone, it's horrific, but that alone, I, I can sort of focus on it. 
we can figure out how to help, we can mentally manage it, but that's not all it is. So we've got the hurricane season historic. We've got this like unbelievable pandemic, civil unrest, uh, the economy, the friction, shall we say, happening politically, which, you know, to be honest, isn't detached from any of those things, right? So it's like individually, I feel like I could emotionally deal with them, but altogether, it's a lot. Oh, it's overwhelming. I can tell you, uh, all of my federal emergency management friends are exhausted, <laughs> you know, and I, it is, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot because it's all happening together. And I think that's something that we're not used to, especially how do we respond in a pandemic? Like that has changed the game altogether. And, you know, you'll hear a lot of different groups that are used to responding by sending a multitude of people on the ground. They're responding virtually and they're learning to do things differently. And it's kind of shifting gears and learning how to manage a disaster and still help support people, but do it in a different way. And we're resilient humans. Like we figure it out, you know, and it's not going to be perfect the first time, but we're going to figure it out. You know, it's never going to be perfect with disasters. I mean, that's kind of a falsehood that we could ever get anything perfect. There's always going to be problems because not every disaster is the same. So I think that people just need to kind of separate the disasters and see that all right, hurricane, we're in hurricane season. We've got maybe another two months to go. Um, two and a half months. Um, wildfire season happened a little early this year. Um, hopefully we're, you know, as the weather, the temperatures start to cool down, maybe we'll see that sort of um, stave off. But it's, you know, the pandemic is really the sort of underlying concern right now. And how do we get out of it so that we can, you know, start start our lives in a different, and back to a back to the way that we had, but in a very different way. So there's a new normal. Sharon, I know you're slammed, so I'll let you go. But you know, as I said, I talked to Jamie Clark with Acadiana Animal Aid in Louisiana, and she was talking about how COVID has just changed everything. The sheltering, you know, it's COVID's done a lot of good in the movement, obviously, to move us forward. But I mean, talk about an area where COVID is like no help. And, you know, the, the sheltering component, especially for the human side, I think is so important because you have so many people that are displaced that once upon a time would go to maybe a Red Cross shelter, but that Red Cross shelter is working off of a 50% occupancy. And so you have to find a solution for the other 50% that would have gone to the shelter. So you're now looking at hotels, but then how do you keep people safe in hotels? You now have to add PPE to the mix. And you have to make sure that the hotel's continually cleaning and nobody's getting sick. And so it's, you know, all these added things that we never thought we had to add to our, our repertoire of response, you know, it's just, um, it's an interesting situation to be in. But again, it's not something that we cannot solve. And it's not something that we cannot address. We, we're addressing it. We're doing it. We're figuring it out. I want to stay optimistic about us as a population and how we're able to continue to deal with it. The best thing that we can do right now is continue to prepare ourselves for disasters, prepare ourselves and our families, write a plan, build the kits that you need, you know, just do what you can do to just mitigate how the disaster can impact you and your family and include your four-legged family members in those plans. I think that's parting words for me. <laughs> I appreciate that optimism from you, Sharon. Like, I don't even know how you'd begin to do your job without it, I suppose. So finally, I just want to ask, how are you doing? How are you, Sharon, doing personally? 
Oh, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm a little sleepless, but I'm I'm doing well. I'm working late nights trying to figure it out. I'm including in my daily routine things that I love to do. So whether it's going for a long walk or playing with the dog or going for a run, just trying to, you know, sort of help exercise my mind and my body so that I am not completely immersed in disaster world 24-7. Again, if your organization can provide positive outcomes for animals from the Gulf Coast region, email us, podcast at bestfriends.org. We've also put up some information on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Easy enough, bestfriends.org slash podcast. I'd like to thank the producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.